0: All right, well, church family, glad you're here tonight. Before we dive too crazy, let's spend a little time in prayer with those at our table. And just remind you, as we come on Wednesdays, really want us to hone in on praying for uh, just for three regular things. Uh, First is for revival in our own hearts as a church, just that there would be a true and pure and uh, real love for Jesus and that God would continue to breathe a fresh wind and light a fresh fire in our souls for him that God, too, would bring an awakening in our community. We had a CU at the poll this morning, uh, and some of us, we've uh, one of our, the, the Bell Departments uh, adopted the Pace School across the street, and so we were out there this morning uh, in prayer, and part of, part of what we're praying is that God would bring awakening, spiritual awakening in the life of our community, and our neighbors, and our coworkers, and our kids and grandkids, classmates. There would be a recognition that uh, what this world offers doesn't satisfy And it would present open doors where we could tell them the truth of who they were made for and who will satisfy. So awakening. And then third is that we would just continue to pray for wisdom, uh, wisdom for our leaders, for justice, both in our land and for our leaders. Truth, that truth would reign in our land, that things of evil that are working in the cover of darkness would be exposed, that people would see the truth of what's going on. And we want to pray for favor, and all of that obviously is prayed in the context of we're told to pray for our leaders so that we may live a peaceful and quiet life attending to the work of our hands. And so uh, I'm just going to ask that right now at your table, if someone would be willing to start, and I'll give you, uh, we're going to take a few minutes to pray, and then I will pray that time in conclusion, and we will uh, we will dive into uh, where we're going to go tonight in the Word. So i turn it over to you guys, both here in the room and those of you watching online. Father, as we come, uh, Lord, just thank you for the many who were here tonight, for those who are watching via Zoom, and just for the opportunity, Lord, to open up your Word. God, as we looked at your Word this Sunday, may we, may we not be guilty tonight of, of auditing your Word. May we not be guilty of just a fascination with the things we can know from your Word. May we not be guilty of of a knowledge that's enough to win us a championship in Bible drill, but that doesn't penetrate our hearts. Lord, may we, as we look at what we're looking at tonight, Lord, the reality of heaven, the reality of hell, how those things should apply, may may it do something in our lives. Because they're not simple realities just for us to be aware of. They're realities that should dictate how we live and move and breathe. So, Jesus, we look to you. Bless this time Holy Spirit, you move as you want instant amongst us. May you be worshipped in this time. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, we're going to dive in. And I did discover, Rob, that this thing actually has a pointer on it. So that's pretty handy. Uh, so here's let me just give you this proviso. As we walk through this tonight and the next couple weeks, uh, if if I look at the clock and see we're about 5 till 7, and we've got more to cover technically for that night, I'm just going to pause us and we'll pick up like a college lecture the next class period, if you will, um, rather than trying to cram and condense. Um, last week, we, 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 we've, we've jumped back into a worldview category, and last week we tried to walk through and just do a real simple... Um, when we talk about the category of philosophy and the questions philosophy raises, what is true? How do you know it's true? What is real? How do you know what is real? Uh, and understanding the different answers that are given. We, we came and found biblically, we have to understand that that truth is is objective. It's not dependent upon what we think. It's absolute, meaning it's the same thing for all people in all places at all time. And it is personal because ultimately, truth is not something just abstract out there in addition to God, but God is truth. And anything that is true is true because it corresponds to who God is and what God has said. And when it comes to reality, we, we understand that knowing that God's, God is truth, His Word is truth, His Word tells us that we, we exist Uh, in what we would call a dualistic reality. And what I mean by dualistic is that there is a physical scene, scientifically observable universe that we are in right now. But we also know that there is a spiritual realm, will be the term that I use. And in that place, heaven exists, hell exists. In that place, angels and demons live and move and breathe. and, And though the unseen came before the scene, Spiritual realm was created before the physical realm, and though the physical realm can't see the spiritual realm, we also understand the spiritual realm very much interacts with the physical realm. And we'll look at that more in the coming weeks when we get to angels and demons, uh, not as much tonight. But we also understand that you and I as human beings, part of what makes us unique in the image of God is we are Uh, We are at least two-part beings. We have a physical body that lives and moves and breathes in this world, that doctors are able to practice medicine on, that chiropractors are able to adjust, that dentists are able to work on teeth, that we can make discoveries. We have physical bodies. We also have a part that makes us us that is not physical but is spiritual. And we can just use a simple term, the soul. And at, at death... What what makes death so traumatic is you and I were created for our soul to never be separated from our body. That was the original intent. But what death does is it separates the two. And when it separates the two, that's where we're going to look at and see tonight. We've got to understand that these realities, because these realities dictate how we live and move and breathe now. And so go back to where we ended last week. The predominant worldview really Philosophically, in our country, uh, towards truth, we are a very postmodern people. That is, truth being subjective and relativistic. What's true for me is true for me. It's not true for you. All that kind of jazz. But in reality, to what we believe and perceive about what is real, we are very materialistic, naturalistic. Only the physical exists. All you've got is this life. And then, and then, what's interesting is even those who are. Leaders in our society, and this is off script. Even those who are leaders in, in our society, who, who would advocate for the, the the ethical positions in those things, when you turn and ask them the question, "So what happens when you die?" It's amazing the variety of answers that you get, because, and, and very rarely, and there's there's a, one of the late night talk show guys. He has a little questionnaire, and he'll ask celebrities. What happens when you die? That's one of his questions in there. In addition to apples or oranges and what's the perfect kind of sandwich? I have not heard a single one of the celebrities who answer that say, oh, when we die, we just cease. Because there's something on the human heart that can't accept that because we don't just cease. And that's where we go tonight. So here's, here's where we're going to start. Here's how we're going to walk through heaven and hell. What happens when a person dies? That's how we're going to walk through it tonight. What happens when a person dies? So a person breathes their last breath, and when they breathe their last breath, their soul, that spiritual part of their being, is separated from their physical body. The physical body has, has gone out, it's no longer got life, and that person That person then stands before God in one of two ways. There's only one of two ways a human being can stand before God. You either stand before God in your own righteousness or you stand before God in Christ's righteousness. Those are the only two options scripture gives us. If you stand before God in your own righteousness, then that means you are depending upon the work the effort, the good of your life to measure you up to God as why you should be reconciled to him and and spend eternity, which we know from scripture, that is an eternal chasm. No one's, no one is saved by good works of righteousness. Scripture's clear. Ephesians 2, Romans 3. In fact, Romans 3 will take it. If Ephesians 2 tells us we are not saved by good works of righteousness, Romans 3 tells us It wouldn't even matter even if we could be because there is no human being that is righteous. So this would be a person who dies and and we would use the term uh, for for most of us in this room, uh, we'd use the term, this is someone who is lost. If you're in Christ, or if you're saved, saved by grace through faith, again, how do you get in Christ? You do not get in Christ because you read your Bible. You do not get in Christ because you were born to Christian parents. You do not get in Christ because you were sprinkled as an infant. You do not get in Christ because you can check off all the boxes. The only way a person can get in Christ is by God's grace, received through a response of faith, to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's the recognition, I'm a sinner. Jesus came. He lived a real life. He lived the life of perfection that I failed to. He died on a cross. On that cross, he became my sin and bore the punishment I deserve, the punishment that if I stand in my righteousness, I'm going to receive. He died, but he died also righteous as his own man. He rose from the grave and now I can, when I turn and recognize you are Lord and I need, I need to recognize you as Lord, I need you as my savior. When you respond in repentant faith, God saves you. it's this, this one of those two realities when a person dies and based on where a person stands determines when it comes to heaven or hell, where we go. So we better make sure we know what on earth scripture actually says. And I've, I've brought you some interesting, is this gonna do it? I don't think it's, it's clicking. At, at where? That's so... No, it's all right. I had some slides of some Looney Tunes and Tom and Jerry for you. Because here's what's fascinating to me. In, in 10 years of doing ministry with, with uh, 12 to 22-year-olds... You would think I would tell you the number one questions that I've been asked, the number one question that I've been asked in ministry has something to do with homosexuality or transgenderism or the number one question I have been asked in ministry by people ages 12 to 22. Does a person who commits suicide really go to hell? Now here's what's interesting. What do we say? What's gonna dictate where a person goes? Not how they died but where they stand in Christ. So how on earth has it become so accepted and mainstreamed that if I commit suicide, God's going to send me to hell? Which is an idea that comes out of Catholicism. But wait a minute, America's a Protestant country. It was, until the massive immigration of the 1800s, when Roman Catholicism became the dominant denomination in our land, and because it became the dominant denomination in our land, some of those ideas crept into culture where it was more c- culturally accepted of some church ideas. So when you see certain aspects, and we, we won't go there uh, unless, it's, unless it's an easy fix. We won't worry about going there. But when you see some of the reason I put some of these pictures, some of it's for laughs, but it's also to go look at some of the imagery. Like one of the pictures is of Sylvester finally bites the dust chasing Tweety and he, he, he goes down this really snaky, terrifying, uh, fall, take one step to the left, fall off the chasm into flame, path to hell. And when he gets to hell, there's Satan, the bulldog up on his throne, pronouncing his sentence and on and on. Except we're gonna see here in a second, hell is not Satan's kingdom. And nowhere in scripture is, is he ever given power in hell. Hell is God's kingdom. So here we go. What happens when I die? We're going to start with hell. Uh, Here's what's on your sheet. I gave you a real simple definition. Hell is the real literal place of eternal, conscious, just punishment for the unrighteous and wicked, both human and demonic. Hell is a real place. It's an actual place that someone can go. It is a literal place. It's not metaphorical. It's not an analogy for something else. It's a real, literal place. Yeah, this is actually an artistic, a really fancy artistic rendering of Dante's Inferno and his view of hell and the the different layers. Uh, Is it going now? Oh, great. And this is all the different circles and what goes there and this and that. And you get down there and uh, yeah, here we go. Here's the nasty spiral into hell. Sylvester, here he is standing before Satan the bulldog, before the pit of fire. And this is, yeah, <laughs> Satan the bulldog tells him, hey, you've only died one time. Cats have nine lives. Go back. You got eight more tries. And he tricks them. And then here's try number nine. And now he's <laughs> destined for hell forever. Uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, it's a real literal place of eternal. Hell's not temporal. It's not a place someone's going to go for a period of time. It's eternal. Those who are there are conscious. They are aware. It's just, we're going to see. it's a severe place, but it's just, it's not a place where, where some kind of unwarranted malice is flying out of control. It is a just place of punishment, earned punishment for the unrighteous and wicked. And by unrighteous and wicked, we mean both those who are human without Christ and the demonic, which would be Satan and all of the fallen angels that we call demons. Uh, and throughout scripture, you're going to see different terms. Hades, Tartarus, sometimes, sometimes the term Sheol refers to hell. Sometimes Sheol's used in a bit of a nuanced place way in the Old Testament. Uh, but these refer to the place where the unrighteous go upon death. In the New Testament alone, there are 162 references to hell. So for all the progressive believers who say, ooh, the God of the Old Testament, man, he's sure fiery. We want that God of love in the New Testament. Oh, really? In 27 books, he mentions hell 162 times. Not only that, but Jesus himself in the gospels alone spoke of hell 70 times. That's almost half of all the references in the New Testament. Uh, there's other ideas and many of the ideas. Uh, uh, Gehenna is a term that's used that refers to the final hell, as in the lake of fire. And we'll come to that in a moment. So uh, here we go. Truths of hell. I'm going to... Some of these, I've given you the main scripture references, so I'm, but I, I'm going to have to flip to them fairly quickly. So if you can keep up, wonderful. I'm not going to try to lose you, but if not, I apologize. Hell is an eternal place, Matthew 25, 41. Then Jesus will say to those on his left, depart from me, you accursed people, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Into the eternal fire. It's an eternal place. It's a place that has no end. And also notice that its original preparation is for the devil and his angels. That would be the demons. Hell is a final place in all who enter can never leave. Luke chapter 16, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, which there are some who would say is a parable. I don't think it's a parable. If you look at every other parable of Jesus, one of the distinctive marks of a parable is the characters are never named. This is the, par- this is the, the story of the rich man and who? Lazarus. Someone's named. Says this. Now there was a rich man, Luke sixteen nineteen. A rich man. He habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, enjoyed himself in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus, who laid at the gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed from the scraps which fell from the rich man's table. Not only that, the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it happened that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's arms, and the rich man died and was buried. And in Hades, the rich man raised his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his arms. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but between us and you is a great chasm that has been set. So those who want to go over from here to you will not be able, nor will any people cross over from there to us. Catch what he says. One, you already see the notions of hell being a severe place. The imagery there, it's hot, it's painful, and and even catch the, just just give me a little drop of water off off your tongue. you and I both know it's a hundred degrees outside. You've been out there working and you're, a drop of water is not gonna do a whole lot, but that's just give me something. But you notice what Abraham says? No, there, there, is, there is a chasm that has been set. You're there, you can never cross over here. And those here, they can never cross over there. So it's not just that it's an eternal place. It is a final place. It is a final place for all who go there. Once you wake up and find yourself rightfully and justly in hell, there is no second chance. It's a severe place that has no easing in its severity. It says in, in, in Matthew 8, verse 12, but the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness. And in, 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 in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or with his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And that person will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest night and day. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Over and over again, when you see the imagery of hell, it is hot It is agonizing, it is restless, it is filled with torment. There is weeping, there is sorrow, there is gnashing of teeth. It is a severe place. And according to Revelation 14, what makes it severe is that is the place where where God's righteous, holy, and just wrath is poured out. Which is why, as a side note, when it says Jesus on on the cross became our sin, And he was praying the night before God, if there's any way, let your cup pass from me. Jesus' death on the cross, we can try to identify with the physical pain. Wow, what a brutal way to die. There are many men and women in that history who've been crucified on a cross and their death hadn't done anything to save our souls. It's while on the cross, Jesus as only the fully God, fully human, second person of the Trinity can do he completely and totally drank up all of eternal hell, all of that eternal torment and wrath, that wrath that is poured out, he drank all of that wrath that was due to humankind. So that any who would respond to him would not have to, but I want you to see what makes hell a, a tormenting place is it is the pouring out of God's wrath. In fact, one of the a couple of bullet points down, hell is a just place that rightly satisfies God's holy justice. This is not the place where God's just been a good little boy and held his anger in check. And once they finally get to hell, he can just smash them all to oblivion. Whereas if God's anger, if God's wrath is this explosive rage going everywhere. That's not, that's our picture because that's how we as humans can act. That's not the picture scripture gives. This is the place where God is the righteous, holy judge, hands down the rightful, deserved verdict. If you watch a case, um, the, 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 the mother who was, was um, abducted off the street in Memphis a few weeks ago, right? Headlines everywhere. You couldn't go to a news site and not see those headlines. You can't imagine how horrific, they, they've got the guy, they've caught the guy, there's gonna come a court case. They're gonna lay all the evidence out. And let's just say it's a completely clear, uh, open and closed case, airtight case. When that guy gets the harsh sentence of life in prison or worse, no one who sees the evidence is gonna go, wow, what a, what, a, what a angry judge. No, if he gets anything less, we would go, what a crooked judge. When our righteousness is completely laid out before the Lord, there will be no one who says, oh, I don't deserve this punishment, Lord, you're flying off the handle. Place of hell is a place where God's justice is there. No one is sentenced there who does not deserve to be here. And here's what's interesting. Go Revelation chapter twenty. If you've been following Revelation Chapter twenty, verse ten. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are so are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, it's an eternal place, unescapable, severe. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose presence earth and heaven fled, no place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds." What sends a person to hell? The actual deeds of their sinful action. So Someone dies lost. They stand before the Lord. What's gonna send a person into hell for all eternity? The books are gonna be open. God is going to look at their actual deeds of unrighteousness. And that will be what justly place as a person, all they're guilty and condemned. And though this would be a hot statement to say in some parts of our land, here's the reality. Hell is fair. It's not unfair. Hell is the place. It's a place of separation from relationship with God. I've made the statement here before. A lot of times we say, well, hell is, the, hell is the absence of God. It's not the absence of God. God cannot literally be absent from any place. And that's kind of where you get this idea a little bit of hell being Satan's dominion, except have you noticed in every passage that Satan's mentioned in context of hell, it's the place where he's in bondage, receiving punishment and torment for all eternity. Hell is not a place where Satan rules. There's no rulership of Satan in hell. There is the rulership of God in hell. What is unique about hell is the ability to have a relationship with God, a personal relationship with God, the ability to experience the grace and mercy of God, even which every lost person does right now. Now we experience it as believers in a unique saving way, but God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. There are aspects of living in this world right now where God's presence to bless is tangibly here and can be experienced by both lost and saved, now certainly limited for the lost, but it will not be that way in hell. God is not absent from hell, rather it is the presence of his just wrath alone. It'll be the absence of experiencing his grace, his love, his peace, his mercy. It's a place of separation from God. It's a place for the unrighteous and the wicked. And I emphasize that. It's, it's a place originally made for Satan and all of his demonic forces. It is a place where those who choose to reject Christ, who incidentally have made the exact same decision as Satan and the demonic forces, it's a place prepared for their eternal captivity and punishment, which, which also tells you this. Some will say, well, gosh, that's just so extreme. No, maybe the problem is not how extreme hell is. Maybe the problem is in our refusal to understand extreme hell is, it keeps us from understanding how extremely wrong our sin is. The fact that Jesus says, you may not have committed adultery on your wife, men, but you've definitely lusted after another woman. And if you've lusted after another woman, you're guilty of adultery. And that sin of adultery is so heinous compared to the glory and holiness of God that it deserves an eternity of God's just wrath poured out upon it. You think it's just a simple glimpse that gave you a little enlightenment and dopamine in your mind. Compared to the holiness of God, this is, that's the problem. When we water down hell, when we, when we don't talk about hell, when we completely remove it out and divorce it from context and all of this, it becomes easier to make sin look a whole lot nicer. And in the process, making sin look a whole lot nicer, you invertedly water down the gospel. And well, what did Jesus really need to save me from? I'm a pretty good person. I, I, just, I just seen that get out of hell free card. No, understand what Jesus saved us from. Anyways, that's sermon for another time. So if you die, now here's also what's true about hell. It justly satisfies God's wrath, but scripture is also clear and God is clear that he grieves to ever have to send a human being there. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 33. It's also one we've mentioned before in here. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure at all in the death of the wicked, but I rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why should you die, house of Israel? Understand that God does not, while hell satisfies his justice as a just and holy God, God does not take delight that they are image bearers whom he does love, who by virtue of their own choice must go there, which is why God is not slow as some count slowness, but wishes that none should perish and all should have everlasting life. Now not all will, but why does God give so many people such a long leash? Because God's heart is to see lost men and women saved, reconciled to him. And by the way, if we're really his and reconciled to him, the same intensity and passion that he desires that for humanity, so should we. We'll come back to that. But that's the option if you stand before the Lord in your own righteousness. What happens if you stand before the Lord in Christ's righteousness? Well, when your soul detaches from your body at death, you stand before the Lord covered in the blood of Christ, made righteous, you are sitting at the table of God because you're in Christ, and you find yourself therein heaven. And heaven is the real literal place where God's presence and glory are on fullness of display. And it is the final place for all who have been made righteous in Christ by grace through faith. Heaven is not an analogy. It's not a metaphor. It's a real place, a real place where God has chosen for his glory and presence to be expressed most fully right now. And I say chosen because understand this, God made heaven. God existed before there was heaven. God had all his glory before there was heaven. Heaven is a place in the spiritual domain where God has made it that those who die in Christ, that is, that is right now where they go when they die. It's the place where the angels are and it's a place where he chooses for the fullness of his glory and, and, and uh, uh, power to dwell but do understand that even heaven itself is a created place made by God. Uh, But it's a a real and literal place. Think about how Jesus speaks about it in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. I don't go to prepare an idea for you. I don't go to prepare a state of, of being for you. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you will be It is a real tangible place. Stephen being stoned uh, by the Jews there in, in, in Acts chapter seven, he looks up and he doesn't say, behold, a state of heavenly bliss. He says, behold, I see into heaven. And Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. He sees a place. All throughout the New Testament, it speaks of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. In Hebrews, it speaks of Jesus as the great high priest. He breathes his last breath and he takes the blood he has shed on the cross and he enters into the heavenly tabernacle that the earthly one was modeled after. And he goes before the throne of God and the Holy of Holies and he sheds and lays that blood there to make atonement for our sin. That's not a state, that's not a metaphor, it's a place. Heaven is a real place. It's the place where his, God's presence and glory are on full display and where God makes known his presence to bless. We, we see this. Think about Isaiah chapter 6. Behold, my eyes were opened, smoke filled the temple, and I saw holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, is the, the train of his robe filled the glory, f, f, or, or his, the train of his robe and glory filled the temple. Heaven is the place where his glory, which we get small peaks of now, But for those who are there in heaven, they see and behold his glory, his presence. Heaven is the final place for all who place faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. John chapter 10, he speaks about, no one shall be able to, speaking of the sheep who are his sheep, be us as believers, no one is able to snatch them from Jesus's hand. John chapter 10. Meaning this, it is true, one of the, ten, the, the aspects of our salvation, if our salvation is a gift of grace, not conditional upon our work, it cannot be lost. You cannot lose heaven if in fact you are in Christ. Otherwise, that means you possess a greater strength to wrestle yourself out of the hand of Jesus than Jesus has And if you can out-wrestle Jesus's hand, then I doubt Jesus's hand is really mighty enough to save us. It's a final place when you and I go to heaven. Now final place, asterisk. we'll get to that in a second because the current heaven will not be where we are forever. It's temporary, but it's where we go if we die right now. In heaven, we find this, that there's an awareness of time and earthly events. Heaven is not just some kind of infinite it is if time doesn't exist but it's a sense of unending moments it never comes to an end you say well well pastor how do, you, how do you know there's an awareness of time and events well look at revelation chapter 6 with me revelation chapter 6 says when the lamb broke uh, verse 9 when the lamb broke the fifth seal i saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been killed because of the word of god and because of the testimony which they had maintained, and they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who live on the earth? There you have saints, souls, men and women in Christ, surrounding his throne. They are aware that there has been a long period of time on earth since their death. Lord, how long will you wait to bring your justice on that? There's an awareness of time. There's an awareness of of one's life, people, past events, all of those individuals, they know who they are. They know they were put to death as martyrs. They know that the people who put them to death have not been served justice. There is an awareness. So I know the question comes up, well, do our loved ones look down on us or not? Well, the truth is to really say positively is a little bit of speculation. What it does seem to be is that there is the opportunity in heaven to be aware of at least where where in terms of space and time, this reality is at the same time I think it's valid and I highly suspect that when we're in heaven, we are going to be so consumed by the glory and pleasure of the presence of God that we're not really gonna be paying attention to the jumbotron of this reality. But there is does seem to be some awareness. Uh, Revelation chapter 21. This is gonna move us past a little bit but this applies to current heaven as well as to new heaven and new earth. But, well, just keep your finger there. There is in heaven no sin. There is no suffering. There is no death. Instead, there is perfect, holy, loving communion with God. We'll come back to that in a second. So keep your finger then, Revelation 22. But what we do in heaven, by the way, I forgot I have some Tom and Jerry slides. Heaven, here we go. He's died. Here's the escalator to heaven. Pretty sure it's not an escalator. Jesus will come get you. Pretty sure you're not going to have to ride this. This is a whole lot nicer looking than the path to hell though. But, oh, just joke. That's just a way to get to the gates. You got to take the heavenly express right there. Uh, And then he's got to get Jerry to sign off that he forgives him so he can get into heaven because those you've wronged on earth control your eternal destiny. False. That's not true, but that's what the cartoon implies. Here he's begging, please sign it. And here we go, hanging out a little bit mad with the harp on there. What will we do in heaven? Hebrews chapter four alludes to the fact that we will rest. You think about, by rest, I don't necessarily mean like a... a, rest from work, we're gonna see in a second, we will actually have work in heaven. By rest, we mean the intensity, the longing, the aching, the hardness of this life, the inability to find a full and complete rest from the distress of this world. There in the presence of God, it will be perfect rest, flawless rest. You will never feel weariness in your bones. You will never feel weary from the news. You will never fear distressed over over how one is acting or not. There will be perfect and flawless rest. We will worship. Revelation 19 shows us surrounding the throne, worshiping. Revelation 7, when that great passage about, I saw a multitude that no number could count of every tongue and every tribe, declaring, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. I see this multitude. What will we do? We will worship God. And by the way, when you unpack what worship is throughout scripture, it is way more than sitting on a cloud with a boring old harp. In fact, there is no place in scripture you will find saying about those in heaven that they sit on clouds and play harps. And I say that because for many of us, if we're honest, someone in here as a kid and I'll throw my hand up was like, oh, heaven's gonna be us just playing harps, singing songs about Jesus the whole time. That doesn't sound super exciting because worship is more than just sitting on a cloud thumbing a harp. Worship is declaring his worthiness. Worship is certainly singing. Worship is hearing his word. I mean, you think about that church family in heaven. You're not going to have to sit and listen to me preach about God. You're just going to listen to God talk. In heaven, you're not going to have to, to see an Easter pageant with an actor, try to play Jesus or put, you're just going to see Jesus. Your eyes are going to be filled with wonder and awe and and, and beauty at who he is. You're going to talk here. This is going to be worship. Not only that, but worship will tie to works. You say, Work, yes. Look at God's created order. God created Adam, and what did he say before sin ever entered the picture? Here's your work. Scripture pictures us, Matthew 28 and Luke chapter 2, that we will be judging. We judge that. You know, also how I know we don't get wings and become angels? Because we judge the angels according to scripture, we sit and judge the angels whom right now appear more glorious than us, because we're made in the image of God, not angels. we found matthew twenty five of course is the is the parable of the uh the parable of the the talents where uh uh the Lord, the Lord of the land gives one, one guy five talents, one guy two talents, one guy one talent, and says, hey, I'll come back, put these to work. You know, the five, he goes out, multiplies it, puts it to work, 10. The guy with two, four. The guy with one goes, I'm terrified at, at if I mess up, I'm going to bury it in the ground and do nothing. And the master comes back. And what does he say to the faithful servants? You have been faithful in little, so now I will make you faithful in much. In the context of the parable talks about us with our talent being faithful in this life and Christ rewarding that faithfulness with faithfulness in much in the world to come. Speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that the life that there's two ways as a believer to build on the foundation of Christ Jesus in our life. We can build with wood, hay and straw or we can build with gold, silver and precious jewels. And it says that if we build, that on that day, uh, that the, day the, the day we stand before the Lord, the day will show the work because it will be tested by God's holy fire. And the fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work which he has built remains, he will receive a reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet is only through fire, which seems to imply a couple things. One, let me be clear here. If you are in Christ, heaven right when you die see Jesus face to face. You're going to, as we see in a second, get the resurrection body. You get new heaven and new earth. There, is, there seems to be alluded to in scripture, some aspect beyond that of those of us in Christ who live faithfully, there is an aspect of additional reward there than those of us who are in Christ, but choose, pardon the pun, who choose to live like hell. And that's literally what 1 Corinthians 3 is saying there, that there are gonna be some, they're in heaven, they are fully saved, they are there, but when their life was laid on the altar, it was found to be built with wood, hay, and straw and things that do not last. And they're there, they're saved, but did you catch what it said? As though singed with fire. That's why when I say that pun, I'm not trying to be dramatic or try to be mic-dropping. That's literally what the language of the text is alluding to in that place. So understand, we're going to work in heaven. We're going to have things to do. This is what it's going to be. Now, this is the temporary reality. Here's the second part of heaven or hell that most of us It's easy for us to lock out. Right now, if you die in Christ, you go to heaven. If you die outside of Christ, you go to hell. Both current heaven and current hell are temporary. Why? Because when Jesus comes back, other events spring into motion. First Corinthians chapter 15 says that the trump will resound and in the twinkling of an eye, those of us in Christ will be transformed. Our bodies will be transformed. When Jesus comes back, And someone's gonna go, what about all the various theories of end times? We're not getting into end times tonight. What What I'm saying is there comes a point, regardless of what view you hold to of end times with the exception of one or two, which are clearly heretical, Jesus comes back. And when he comes back, the trumpet blares he descends, those who are alive, if that happens to be us, we're gonna look up, see him descending with his legion of angel armies behind him. Not only that, we will see the dead in Christ, those souls in heaven will be, will be placed back in their bodies which rise from the grave are reconstituted and and given a heavenly flesh, a flesh like that of Jesus' resurrected body, we will see them rise and go into the air or if we're already dead, that'll be us. All of a sudden we'll find ourselves back in our body but it'll be nice and spry and and able to fly and we'll go up in the sky and then those who are remaining, they'll be caught up in the sky and all of a sudden in a twinkling of an eye, according to 1 Corinthians 15, their body will be in, in 1 John chapter 3 says those resurrection bodies We'll be able to see Jesus because we'll have bodies like Jesus. Which by the way, just on a funny, I think I've told you this before, the early church had this debate. Well, in our resurrection body, what's a person gonna look like in their resurrection body? Are you stuck at the age you died at? So for the baby, they're one for all eternity. For the 108-year-old, the they're 108 for all eternity. And they had this, and they said, well, scripture says we're gonna have bodies like Jesus. So this was their logic. I think it's pretty sound. If we're gonna have bodies like Jesus, Jesus died around 33, so our bodies will be looking 33. So hopefully you liked what you look like at 33. <laughs> Again, take that with a little bit of grain of salt, but it's, it's not bad. So that's what happens first. Second, you're gonna have judgment. We already looked at Revelation 20, what we'd call the great white throne judgment. Uh, Matthew speaks about the angels come and they separate out those who are saved from those who are lost. Those who are lost, they're gonna be judged according to their sinful deeds and they are going to be along with Satan and the demons, the beasts, and they're gonna be thrown into the lake of fire, Gehenna, and the lake of fire, that is permanent hell. So current hell is temporary. And by the way, believe it's there in Revelation chapter 20. I'd talked through this before and forgotten this. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you, I'll have to go fact check and look at the scripture next week. But when you do, when because it's somehow not on my list, we get reunited with our bodies and they are resurrected bodies. The lost get reunited with their bodies and they're reconstituted, but not resurrected. The lost will suffer physically in hell for all eternity. That happens at the great white throne judgment. You see the lake of fire. Matthew 11, Jesus is speaking. He talks about how those who did not believe the miracles he did in Gal in the region of Capernaum and all of that, that it will be harsher for them on judgment day than for Sodom and Gomorrah, which also seems to imply that in eternity in hell, everybody gets the full wrath of God, but there even seems to be in the sight of the wrath of God an understanding that there were people who committed far more sin in life and you go, pastor, tell me more about that. Can't. I'm just telling you what Jesus's words seem to imply. And that's about as far as scripture goes. And, and, I, and you're going to say, well, that leaves us with the que- There's a lot of things in scripture that leave us with the question. What's not a question is that it's a person's sinful deeds that will send them into hell. And, and this will be when it happens. In addition, here's what Revelation 20 says. Revelation 20 says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven. So Jesus has returned. The, the, dead and, the dead who are lost have been judged in the great white throne. Those of us who are saved, we've been reunited with our resurrected bodies. And then I behold an angel coming down from heaven, holding the, uh, sorry, no, um, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have gone the new heaven and the new earth. That's the eternal place for us as believers. Where did you catch? The new heaven and the new earth come and God comes down out of heaven where right now the fullness of his presence and glory are. And he comes down to the new earth and says, I will make my eternal abode on new earth with men and women, my, my humans, my image bearers which is incredible, church family, and that's why sometimes you say, listen, the physical matters to God, otherwise he wouldn't make his dwelling in all eternity a physical new earth where we are re-inhabiting physical resurrected bodies. The new heaven and the new earth, and there we will rest and we will worship and we will work. Not only that, but in all of this, as God brings the new heaven and new earth, the earth will no longer groan. Obviously, we've, our tensions turn to Florida with the hurricane, the earth groans, natural disasters happen. It is a reflection of how our sin, our eating of an, I don't know why we always picture an apple, but our eating of the fruit, God said not to, which is not a very violent act, by the way, broke all of creation. According to Romans chapter eight, and creation cries out, creation will be restored. That's when you see those passages as those end-time prophecies in the Old Testament, talking about the lion and the lamb will will sit together. The you can go on and on. There will no longer be animosity, even in even in creation. And there we will be for all eternity. Now. Hmm. Told you we might have to just drop. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read these off, and this will pick up next week. Notice in all of that what you didn't hear. You never heard anything about a temporary holding place for people to work off their sins, aka purgatory. It's not there. In fact, if you really want to know where purgatory comes from, there's a single line in the Old Testament apocrypha books that one guy early on, one guy in the four or five hundreds made a statement on and another guy a hundred years later made another statement on and you go down the line, it's from that single line in an apocryphal book, the entire doctrine of purgatory is built. And the, and, and the only reason it stuck around is because it was at the center of the controversy between Martin Luther and the selling of indulgences by John Tetzel, which is, I can come back to that at a different time, but you see, there is no purgatory. You see, there's no soul sleep. To be absent from the body, first or second Corinthians 4, is to be not asleep, it's to be present with the Lord for those in Christ. It's to be instantly also, by the way, in soul sleeps idea that when you and everyone dies, we just go into like a holding stasis until the Lord returns. Well, that can't be because Jesus said, I'm not. Did you not Jesus rebuked the Pharisees? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm not the God of the living, or not the God of the dead, but of the living. Also, who did the disciples see Jesus talking to? Elijah and Moses. Moses experienced death. So if soul sleeps really, couldn't have been talking to Moses. Soul sleep's not there. Annihilation, annihilationism is not there. It's a, uh, the idea that basically God will punish the lost in hell for a certain time and then he'll just snuff them out of existence. And it, it misses. Um, you notice how it talked about they, they, will, they, will, they will suffer there forever and ever, Revelation 14, because that's the weight of sin. You, also, you see no harps and halos for the saved. We don't become angels. We're greater than angels. You also see there are no second chances. If you die without responding to Christ, there's not another opportunity to respond. For those of us in Christ, brothers and sisters, we get one life to live for the glory of God we get one. Now, yes, you can go, well, well wait a minute, we're going to be alive. for all life. Yes, but I mean this side of heaven, the life that is evaluated leading into eternity, we get one shot. We get one shot. We get one shot. So very simply put, we do not abuse or misunderstand the doctrine of hell. It's not something to be ashamed or embarrassed about. We need to be honest about it. It's not something that means God is not loving. It reflects the just heart of God. It shouldn't be something we're particularly excited about. If you run around and go, oh my goodness, I'm just so jazzed up about hell after pastor's talk tonight, we got problems. It must not be something we cheapen. To cheapen or humorize hell is to cheapen and humorize the justice of God. That's a specific note I made teaching Aggies because every week the Aggies wish to beat the H out of somebody. And we can laugh, but I'm being serious. As a believer, you should never wish to beat the H out of anybody, even if it's part of your school's motto. Because that cheapens and humorizes the justice of God and mocks a place of sorrow that many men and women have chosen to go and experience eternal death in shouldn't be something we threaten with. It means we should take God seriously. God takes his own holiness seriously, so, so should we. It also means, church family, we need to understand the Great Commission is not the good suggestion. People's eternities depend on whether or not they hear and respond to the gospel. You and I cannot control their response. But if we keep our mouth shut, they will not hear the gospel. It also means this, and, and this, is, this is where we will end. And I'm aware of the time, but it was, it, this is an awkward deal of if we go about five minutes over, we can at least cover what we need to and not leave a cliffhanger. But if we don't, it kind of leaves an awkward starting part next week. For those of us in Christ, there is hope. Church family, new heaven and new earth, current heaven and new heaven and new earth will not disappoint No eye has seen, no ear has heard the things the Lord has in store for those who love Him. We should eagerly look forward to it. In accordance to Jesus' command, we should eagerly lay up treasure in it. It will be glorious. It means God wins. Justice reigns. And it's why... In 1 Corinthians 15, after Paul has spent the entire chapter talking about the importance of the resurrection, breaking down our resurrection bodies, telling us flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trump will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable put, puts on the imperishable, when this mortal, the immortal, when he's saying, when we, when we get our resurrected bodies, then then will come about the saying that is written, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gave us victory through Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, after all of this, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be firm be immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Church family, there is hope. God wins. We should look forward to this. We should be not scared by it. And we must allow the reality and the excitement and the hope of heaven to drive a faithfulness till our final breath this side of heaven. Okay, I told you five minutes. It's five minutes. We'll pick up next week. If you got questions, I'm here at the front, come ask. Hopefully I haven't confused you crazy too much. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll pick up here and, and, and clean up anything we need to next week. And, and then we'll move into uh, talking about angels and demons. So, I mean, again, it's gotta be, we gotta understand reality is seen and unseen. If it's all seen, there is no hope. Because Romans 8 tells us hope that is seen is not hope. But hope is coming. We experience it in part now and we will experience it in full, guaranteed. No matter how bad this hurricane is, no matter if a nuclear warhead gets launched tomorrow, no matter how the election goes in November, no matter on down the line of everything you wanna say, I'm not dismissing any of the concerns of any of those things and others. But the hope of heaven absolutely should drive us. Let's pray. Father, may we understand your truth rightly. May we not cheapen it, may we not humorize it. May we hold to it. God, may we be honest about it. God, may we be excited about it. You're coming back. Oh Lord, that reality captured the heart of Paul. He got a vision and saw into heaven got caught up there. He wasn't allowed to talk about it. And Lord, he told the Philippians that he desired to certainly stay and minister to them, but he longed to just be present with you. Lord, may we be transformed into those kinds of people. God, may they not just be truths we hold in our head, but they may be realities that drive us to stand immovable to not let go, but to to remain faithful in the labor you've called us to as we look forward to the day when we will know your rest for all eternity, when we will worship you, seeing you in your presence. God, we will go about the new work that is beyond all we could think that you have for us for eternity. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.